Uh, hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to a, another episode of the Lisa Johnson podcast. Uh, we are on every Wednesday, uh, 6 p.m. Central Time. So uh, LisaJohnson.com, my website. Look for me on all the various social media platforms, Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok, Apple Music, uh, a whole bunch of others that an old school guy, guy like me might not remember them all. But so we, uh, well, let me back and start like this. Uh, when I was first approached uh, with the idea of doing a podcast, uh, it was explained that we could either find a current niche uh, in the podcast's uh, ecosystem, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, and try to gain an audience that way, or we could do our own thing, things that we think uh, is a good value to uh, our audience and let our audience come to us. In other words, uh, we could uh, go out there and intentionally try to be controversial and, and uh, take sides strongly, or we could do some things to share some knowledge and try to bring people together because, you know, the issues facing our communities, uh, this country, this my state, Minnesota, my city, Minneapolis, uh, they're going to require us to work together, uh, regardless of our political persuasion, regardless of our race, regardless of our religion, regardless of anything that tend to divide us. Now, the challenge is, and we'll get into that in a little bit, is that we got a group of people out there behind the media and the source of our information who don't want us to come together. They benefit power, money, and other ways from us being divided and at each other. And that's the way they manipulate us to support them. And our guest today uh, is, uh, you're going to hear from Dr. Thomas Sowell, and he'll talk a little bit about that. And so, but the point I'm trying to make, we decided to just provide content, try to share knowledge, invite anyone with different opinions to come in and, and challenge us. If we make a mistake in the fact that something isn't right, or we want you to let us know it and, and correct us. And if you just think that uh, we're just totally wrong and you got better answers, we welcome that. Come in and have a dialogue or whatever. And I sincerely mean it. I really don't mind being proven wrong in what I'm saying. And so we welcome that also. Now, you know, I often remind people, whoever controls your knowledge, your education, and your information, they control your thinking, and they control what you do. And there are people out there who are experts at that. And we're going to get into that a little bit. Uh, all of this started as a Black History Month participation. Uh, I don't use the word celebration because I'm not a big fan of Black History Month. And we brought you uh, comments and videos from Morgan Freeman talking about that, how he doesn't want a Black History Month. Like he thought that Black History Month was ridiculous. And we also talked about, we had Malcolm X on where we were talking about how the media and other people choose our leaders. And a lot of times they choose uh, entertainers, and athletes. Now, even though 
Morgan Freeman, we brought you him. Uh, we also brought you some words from Denzel Washington and other celebrities. But the reason we made the exception for these particular uh, celebrities, uh, that they were expressing views that went against the narrative. And one of the points I'm trying to make here during Black History Month is that there's a conscious attempt. And, you know, I, I'll get some people a break. They're maybe not even thinking about it. They just naturally look, have a certain worldview. But no, nah, that doesn't explain it. No, nah, there's got to be a conscious attempt to keep certain ideas and opinion of Black people from the general public and other Black people. And so my uh, objective here during the Black History Month is to present some of these voices. Uh, I just remember uh, my wife coming home um, probably a year or so after George Floyd and one of her white coworkers had made the statement to her that she thought all black people supported Black Lives Matter. And the irony of that, I hardly ever knew anybody, at least my age, middle age and above, who supported Black Lives Matter or defunding the police and all that silliness. A lot of young people, and one of the challenges that we have in our community and in this country, a lot of these young people have been so indoctrinated by our education system, by our uh, mainstream media, by Hollywood, by uh, pop culture, and they don't realize, indoctrinated, uh, that uh, they will easily believe anything that fits the narrative. The narrative has been bought uh, line, hook, and sink, sinker. I think that's where they put that. So we're gonna we're gonna present something different here now. Um, if someone, if I was offered an opportunity to have dinner with anyone currently living and just sit down and talk, it would probably be uh, the focus of tonight's uh, podcast, Dr. Thomas Soul. And this brother has been around, he's, he's in his nineties, I think 93 or 94 years old, and just been powerful. He is probably these, who I consider probably the utmost uh, black intellect of our times. The problem, a couple of problems he had, issues as far as the media is concerned, that's why you never hardly hear from him, is that first of all, he's a data evidence driven person. He has a methodology uh, at getting to what's accurate, what's truthful, what's factual. And uh, the last thing they want are people with methodology and you're stressing data, logic, facts, and things like that. They, they want to give everybody an impression that that's what they're in favor of, but they're not. In fact, that's one of the reasons you see a lot of censoring. And, and the average American doesn't know how much censoring is going on out there. Uh, and so basically, they don't want you to know that. Uh, and so we're trying to address that. Now, I'm going to get into uh, Dr. Soul. Uh, here shortly. But before we do, and we'll give a little background, uh, and this is the reason why I'm here. People, well, first of all, I'm confident in what I know. So anybody out there who think they know better and want to come in and school me, and I mean that, I'm, I'm open to it. But I feel confident in my reading and what I've seen and my evidence and my facts and my logic. So if you're out there, just any, you hear anything, that you strongly disagree with, go out there and do some comments. Send me some comments. Uh oh, and don't forget, 
click the notification bell so you get new content. Uh, click the uh, select the subscribe button so you can subscribe to uh, my channel, my YouTube channel. Uh, we have an online store, has some great things in that. And also, you can just, if you really like what we're saying and you want us to grow, you can just go on Patreon, I think it is, and donate to the program. So don't forget to do those things. But we're mostly here to share knowledge and start a dialogue with those who disagree, those who agree or disagree with us on what's going on. Uh, Thomas Soul. Thomas Soul is like, uh, I guess I'll explain it this way. When I was in college, I was coming across reading a lot of European philosophers and writers, and it was really deep. As a matter of fact, uh, probably let you know uh, that the poet uh, John Milton, Paradise Lost, was what made me change my major to English because I thought it was one of the greatest masterpieces that any man could uh, produce. But the thing of that is, is that I kept looking for uh, some person of color, some black person who brought that same uh, intellect to the subjects of the day. And where I'm going, I came across James Baldwin, uh, The Fire Next Time. If you ever go out and read that book, I think it's a timeless book. And he just had a, a way of looking at things, a way of describing things. It was just really impressive. That's the same type of feeling I had uh, when I came across Dr. Thomas Sowell. And once again, all of you out there, no matter what your persuasion, if you're interested in learning, uh, just go out and do a little research on him. And I'm, I guarantee you, you'll learn some things that you, a lot of things, just about everything that come out of his mouth is a learning experience. So without further ado, I mentioned that one of the reasons I'm here, uh, a lot of us behind after the George Floyd thing, and I'll just repeat this to bore, I don't want to bore my audience who've heard this before, but uh, when George Floyd uh, was killed, I just wanted, and I heard uh, a lot of the uh, anger and animosity towards the police, and, and I was seeing riots and uh, Black Lives Matter all over the world, which is another another different type of thing, Black Lives Matter, what a scam they are. Uh, and I was seeing that, and I'm a data man. I'm not that emotional, and that's why I get into a lot of trouble with uh, and talking with friends and family and stuff. So the first thing I did was, is there data, any data out there on police killing? And so I went to the city of Minneapolis website and you've heard this before, uh, 4 million encounters between the police and Minneapolis citizens between 2008 and 2018, 11 death, and most of those was white. And then the next thing I did was, I was curious about, well, how many unarmed whites get killed by police every year? And I went out and found that, generally speaking, that number was twice as many unarmed white people are killed by police every year than black people. And so that just started me wondering about this whole emotional uh, type of push to defund the police and vilify the police and things like that. And I have to say this, too, because I'm concerned about the lives of our black people that have counters with the police. And I mentioned the same thing I told my sons who I raised in the inner city, obey the law, respect and obey the law, uh, don't uh, resist arrest, and make sure the police see both of your hands at the same time. And let me just say this, if anyone 
I know. Do those three things and still is killed by the police. I'm going to be out there, uh, I guess, marching or whatever I have to do uh, to address that situation. And I think that's what we should put in front of the police. So uh, I'm going to start with the whole George Floyd uh, police killing black folks type of narrative that they put out uh, as a result of the George Floyd thing. And by the way, there are people across the world who want to use black people to achieve their worldly goals. And a lot of them I don't agree with. Most of them, none of them I agree with. And one of the things I'm trying to do is, uh, for lack of a better word, I try to educate us on what's going on uh, along those realms. And we have a lot of educated, successful Black people that's buying into a lot of garbage because the people behind it all, they are very intelligent, very knowledgeable, very educated, very connected, and they have a lot of money and power. And for the most part, they're the type of people, they never have enough money and power, no matter how much they have. So all that is going on. And, you know, people out there to my conspiracy theory, if you think that, come on here and let's have a dialogue too. And I think I'll set you straight instead of you setting me straight. So uh, we're going to start with this uh, little clip. There was a, a brother at uh, Harvard University who did a study on police killings. And he came back, well, he, he did two studies, actually, if you listen to him carefully, he did it two times. And let me tell you about this brother. Uh, he's he, he's from the inner city. He talks about his family was drug dealers. He had a lot of bad run-ins with police. And he went into the study expecting and wanting to find them at fault and vent some of his feelings and frustration. However, uh, the data and the evidence prove opposite of what he was thinking. And he said the first time that he did it, well, I'll let him tell it. Uh, let, let's, let's listen to this uh, young man. Roland, uh, Roland Fryer, uh, paper on police killing, let him tell you his experience. And, you know, uh, by the way, I don't know he's going to get into it on this video. He had to actually get protection and go into hiding just for telling the truth of what was really going on. So let's listen to him right quick and he'll tell you his experience and what he found out. I collected a lot of data. We collected millions of observations on uh, everyday use of force that was a lethal. We collected thousands of observations on lethal force. And, and it was in this moment, 2016, that I realized people lose their minds when they don't like the result. So what my paper showed, you'll see tomorrow, uh, some of you, uh, was that, yes, we saw some bias in the low-level uses of force every day pushing up against cars and things like that. People seem to like that result. But we didn't find any uh, uh, racial bias in police shootings. Now, that was really surprising to me because I expected to see it. The little-known fact is I had eight full-time RAs that it took to do this over nearly a year. When I found this surprising result, I hired eight fresh ones and redid it to make sure they came up with the same exact answer. And I thought it was robust. And I went to go give it. And my God, all hell broke loose. It was a 104-page, dense, academic economics paper with a 150-page appendix. Okay? 
It was posted for four minutes when I got my first email. This is full of shit. Doesn't make any sense. And I wrote back, how'd you read it that fast? That's amazing. You are a genius. And I had colleagues take me into to the side and say, don't publish this. You'll ruin your career. I said, what are you talking about? I said, what's wrong with it? Do you believe the first part? Yes. Do you believe the second part? Well, it's the issue is they just don't fit together. We like the first one, but you should publish the, the second one another time. I said, let me ask this. If the second part about the police shootings, this is a literal conversation. I said to them, if the second part um, showed bias, do you think I would, should publish it then? And they said, yeah, then it would make sense. And I said, I guarantee you I'll publish it. We'll see what happens. So it was, it was you know, I, I lived under, under um, police protection for about 30 or 40 days. I had a seven-day-old daughter at the time. I remember going shopping for because, you know, when you have a newborn, you think you have enough diapers, you don't. So I, I was going to the grocery store to get diapers with the armed guard. It was crazy. It was really, truly crazy. The key thing there, notice, he went in expecting a certain results. The data and findings yield a different results. And people who just didn't like the results was threatening him, wanted him to censor the truth and evidence. And, you know, I normally don't like to tell my age, but I will. I'll be 70 years old this year. And to be honest, people, I never thought I'd see the day that this country became what it has become. It has nothing to do with a search for the truth. It has to do all with narratives that leads to an end results. And to be honest with you, once again, the reason I'm willing to risk this, a lot of it is aimed at taking advantage of the black community by constantly focusing on race and racism and giving it a lot more significance than it really deserved. And I guess I have to add this, uh, and you've heard me say this before, you know, probably one of the, the best thing uh, in my life is that I was bought, brought up with a spiritual uh, foundation. We went to church, we, believed, we were Christian, we believed in God. Second thing is that I had great parents and elders around me. Uh, but the third thing is, I always had a thirst for knowledge and knowledge was always important to me. And so we're in a situation now in this country and in this world where whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. It has to fit a certain narrative. And the sad part of, to me, and once again, this is not bragging or anything, but you know, I know a little bit of science, math, physics, chemistry, literature, microbiology, biology, all the different subjects. And they are uh, corrupting every area of knowledge. They don't care about the truth anymore and the facts anymore. They're censoring people if it doesn't fit the knowledge. And all this evidence is out there. So they're corrupting that. 
and probably even more scary, most of our institutions are being corrupted. Our court system, our political system. And I wrote a newsletter, the whole intelligence agency, people should go out and do some research and history on our intelligence agents. And that was uh, basically the modern uh, intelligence agency was brought into being by President uh, Truman I guess in 1847, Central Intelligence Act or something like that. But I've said it before and I said in the newsletter, almost immediately after he created the Central Intelligence uh, community, he regretted it because he saw abuse from the beginning. And keeping in mind, right after Truman came Eisenhower and Eisenhower warned us about the military industrial complex. So you got two presidents so far, Say, yeah, something isn't right. Some things are going on in the background that's threatening our democracy. I talked about President Kennedy, and you really should go out and see his fighting of the intelligence agency and to the point where he threatened to uh, break the intelligence community, CIA, up into a thousand different pieces and, and throw it to the wind. Uh, he ended up uh, assassinated, and John Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And, well, I'll let you guys go out and look at that. Uh, but uh, every president I've known been warning us. And then in the 70s, there was a church commission that looked at the abuses of the intelligence community, FBI, national security, and everybody. Uh, and they came to the same conclusion. In fact, one of the things that really stood out to me about the, what they did was they, at that time, Senator Frank Church, who headed that uh, Senate Select Committee, his, one of his biggest concerns was the government now have access to technology that's gonna make it very tempting for this government to become tyrannical. And he he hit the nose right on the head. There's things going out on out there. And, and, and Dr. Soul will get into it, uh, where 1% of the people probably know really what's going on. 99% of the people with the best intent and the best beliefs and everything really don't know what the heck is going on here. And so we're going to get into that. So without further ado, I will bring you on uh, my all-time favorite. And like I say, uh, if I had to choose one person on this earth right now to go out and have dinner and talk with, it would be this brother here, my elder, uh, Dr. Thomas Sowell. So I'm going to let you get some background. I've told you about Black Lives Matter. It's going to start off talking about Black Lives Matter. And then it's going to tell you a little bit about uh, his background. And then we're just going to explore some of his ideas. Now, before I say that, I encourage everybody to go out and, and listen to him some more because he got a lot of work and you'll, look, you'll learn about that here. Okay. The only way to close a wealth gap is by transferring wealth. We have to abolish policing. Reparations, listening to them. I kept hearing the voice of Tom Sowell. I haven't been able to find a single country in the world where the policies that are being advocated for blacks in the United States have lifted any people out of poverty. Sowell's an economist who writes great books about economics and culture. Today, he defends free markets and criticizes the conceit of political planners. But he once was a Marxist. What was your wake up to what was wrong with that line of thinking? Uh, facts. Thomas Sowell was born in North Carolina at the start of the Great Depression. His father died before he was born. 
his mother soon after. Before I get into some of his more uh, detailed uh, background and childhood and things like, uh, I want to stress, he said, what changed his mind from being a Marxist and looking at the worldview was facts. And what people, when I say to people, because I was young and somewhat rebellious, and I was buying into all the news media stuff. I used to you know, uh, watch the evening news, PBS, public radio, uh, all the things that uh, a knowledgeable seeking citizen uh, uh, should be watching. And uh, the more I read, the more facts I came across, I saw I started seeing the pattern of the facts that they were not telling us, a whole lot of facts. And then I seen, uh, figured out the motivation the more I connected dots. And the point I'm trying to make, go out and read stuff for yourself. Don't listen to nobody tell you what's in a study. Don't listen to nobody tell you what happened uh, at a congressional meeting. Go out, whenever you can, go out and see it for yourself. And you'll come away with, I think, most of the time with a totally different perspective than these summaries and picking of facts that you get on your mainstream media news. Okay, uh, let's go see. When he was nine, a relative took him to Harlem. We were much poorer than people in Harlem, almost other, anywhere else today. But in another sense, in the sense of the things you need to get ahead, I was enormously more fortunate than most of my kids today. Partly because a friend showed him the Harlem Public Library. When you start getting the habit of reading when you're eight years old, that's a different ballgame. His reading and early life experiences turned him into a Marxist. I would take this Fifth Avenue bus past all these Lord and Taylor and all these fancy places. And then suddenly there were the tenements. And I wonder why is this it's so different? And nothing in the schools or most of the books uh, seemed to deal with that, and Marx dealt with that. What then changed him was his first job. I was a summer intern at the U.S. Department of Labor. One of my biggest concerns was about minimum wages. At first, I thought, this is good because all these people are born, they'll get a little higher income, and so that, that'll, that'll be helpful. And then uh, as I studied economics, I began to see, well, there's a downside. They may lose their jobs completely. And when I came up with how we might test this, I was waiting to hear congratulations. You see that I had this. And I could see these people were stunned. They said, oh, this, this idiot has stumbled on something that would ruin us all. And I realized the U.S. Department of Labor had its uh, own agenda and interests. And that did not necessarily mean that whether the poor people lost their jobs or minimum wages or got higher paid was their highest priority. He found out that people in the government didn't give a rip whether or not it worked or didn't work. They were simply implementing the policy. And that, that's what shocked him and caused him to begin to rethink lots of his assumptions. These video clips come from a new documentary about soul. This whole notion that the black family has always been disintegrating, that is nonsense. What I find most interesting about Soul's work is that it utterly contradicts what Americans are taught about black poverty. Soul's claims of systemic racism in America are propaganda. If you go back into the 20s, you find that married couple families were much more prevalent among blacks then. As late as 1930, blacks had lower unemployment rates than whites. 
So all these things that we complain about and attributes to the era of slavery, those things should have been worse in the past than in the present. Sowell says the bigger cause of blacks' problems today is welfare. He began to have the mindset that goes with the welfare state so that there was no stigma any longer attached, for example, to being on relief. The things they thought were going to help did not help. A uh, couple of things quickly. Mindset. That's our biggest issue. And that's why, and you know, I've, I've been pretty much up front. Uh, I wasn't born and raised with a liberal mindset. Uh, we didn't talk about society, the world, and our history of slavery and all that. It was basically boiled down to me uh, being responsible and accountable what what happened to me and if ever I got to the point where I had a family to be responsible and accountable for what happened to my family now you know we bought into a lot of BS about black folks and what the problem what the solutions are uh one of my favorite is and, and by the way once again like Thomas Sowell when I was younger I bought into a lot of these theories but the more I read and the more facts I got it was pretty easy for me to decide that a lot of this is just BS and so uh, this whole thing, just the importance of the family uh, really uh, stood out to me. And I was, like I say, I wasn't raised a liberal, I was raised a conservative. And because of that, uh, we were not in favor of government uh, programs. We got out and hit it for ourselves. And I guess the point I wanna make, they've created a mindset in us. And that's really what needs to change our mindset. Our mindset, as victims, our mindset as people owe us stuff, our mindset, especially as black men, and, and I'll say this when we get back to the time of soul. Look, I used to buy into the reason the black family is, is split up and dysfunctional is because of welfare. Now, I did add an incentive, but here's the thing where I am today, and I'm just using myself as an example. When I decided to have children. I was committed to marrying the mothers of, our, of my children, and I was committed to supporting them and setting good examples for them. And I'm saying all that to say this, and this is why I get impatient with a lot of the narratives out there. There is no government program they can invent or did invent without me taking my commitment to work hard, provide, offer good role models for my family. This whole thing, well, now nah, you, you got to be committed to that. And, and, and by the way, the other thing is, and I have probably another podcast. Man, there's a lot of things going on in our culture where we're just having a lot of children out of wedlock, single parents. And besides our young boys not having a strong role model in their family, it's putting so much stress on our women raising these children. And it's just unfair. While we out having fun, and and I, I ain't get too much into that, uh, our women are really struggling to try to keep things together and raise our kids. And I'm just to say to black men, and if you got a problem with it, please call and let me know, and uh, we'll sit down and talk about it. We are the main uh, solutions to what's going on. And uh, I'll stress the, one of the statistics about which I think is a major problem. 80% of black men has nothing to do with church or religion or spirituality. And uh, we got a culture now where 
it's like a honor badge for our young women to have babies and just raise them. And I know enough of them and I talk to them and I get their personal story and how they think and how our young black men think. But anyway, the point is, uh, we got to solve this problem ourselves. These government programs by uh, these politicians in the government. In fact, one of the reasons I'm a conservative because you give me a government answer, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear a government answer. And there's a lot of us out there who just in love with government and government solution. And until we fix that mindset, these problems are going to keep getting worse. And in many cases, made things worse. Sowell concluded that many government programs did much more harm than good because of affirmative action. Something like one fourth of all the black students going to MIT do not graduate. You're talking about a pool of people whom you are artificially turning into failures by mismatching them with the school. Saying such things doesn't make Sowell popular with today's political elites, but he doesn't seem to care. Tom is absolutely fearless. He will not compromise any of his opinions for the sake of social politeness. And so today's politically correct media rarely give his work the attention it deserves. The media, the television and the print media, they've wised up. You can't argue with Tom, so you might as well hide what he's doing. And that's what they're doing. They're, 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 they're just ignoring what he's uh, written because they there's no way that they can argue with Tom Sowell. Today, Sowell is a scholar at Stanford's Hoover Institution. He continues to write books about public policy. You can watch the full Sowell documentary at any of these sites starting next week. Okay, so now you have a little background. So this is not somebody who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's went through hard times, and just like I did. You know, I mean, hard times are... Like I said, like it's pressure that creates the diamonds, and uh, that's the way we need to approach it. And I say what I say because once again, I'm 100% confidence. If we get the proper knowledge and information, it will change our mindset, which will change our thinking, which will change what we say and do. And that's the only way we're going to change these conditions. I mean, we can keep, and Dr. Sold is going to talk about this on his next one. We can keep relying, I think it's one, keep relying on politicians and other people outside of our community, outside of our families, uh, outside of our manhood to solve these issues. It's not going to happen. Uh, so it's not going to be easy, but we're going to uh, uh, work hard, and I'm going to do the best I can to help with this mindset changes so the next thing up i'm going to have you uh have a little bit more input from dr soul where he's talking about uh various other issues you're going to be very familiar with some of the other perspective on things which i think look i think it's the right perspective but one thing i do know we've been trying that other perspective for 50 60 years and things have just gotten worse and i at this point 99% sure, as long as we're looking at the world that way, as long as we're focused on race and racism, as long as we focus on what happened to us three, 400 years ago, as long as we focus on slavery and we don't know the history of slavery, as long as we're doing those things, we're never going to solve this. This thing where we're going in, just like the guy that did the uh, study on the police case, where we're going in thinking 
We got the answer. This is the solution. And by the way, there's almost never a single answer. And there's almost never this, even if there is a single answer, it probably ain't race and racism. I know we've been programmed to believe that. But let's listen some more to uh, Dr. Soul and some of his ideas and beliefs that I want to share. of things there. Uh, the gentleman that was doing the interview, this the late William F. Buckley, he, he, I consider him the uh, father of modern conservatism. I had a TV show that ran a while. I think he might have even started up the National Review magazine. Uh, the other thing I should point out about uh, Dr. Soul is that he's a uh, close, he was a close uh, student of uh, the Pulitzer Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman and I'm a fan of Milton Friedman also and so a lot of things that he's saying economically and Milton Friedman I think was at the University of Chicago I know that's where uh, he was I think when he got his uh, Nobel Prize for economics and Dr. Soul went there and was a disciple of his so he knows very much about economics now couple of things uh the word dependent and you hear me you want to hear me use that word a lot when i talk about what our current mindset and our current friends especially our current political quote-unquote friends actually they're scamming us they're scamming black voters and once again that's why i'm out here and boy this is going to be controversial but i i welcome anybody to start a dialogue on, on, on this. Really, they're scamming black people and black, black voters. We're just pawns in a global chess game, and we can't seem to figure it out. Uh, but I'm going to bring in uh, another uh, clip here uh, from Dr. Soul, and let we're going to get into a little bit more of his philosophies and things. And then we're going to close it with a comment and send you off. Uh, I always like to be uh, positive uh, because one of the issues now, and, and this is what I'm concerned with our youth, our young people, our old people, let them be fools. Man. That what our young people are hearing, and it's intentional, let's get back to the indoctrination. You are a victim. 
America is so corrupt and the world is so corrupt and so racist that no matter what you do, uh, it's going to be hard to get over and you're probably going to be in the same position. And you're comparing this. And once again, Dr. Soul gets into that. I hope I got the clip here. You compare this with uh, education institution. And they're doing things very so. Uh, but I went to school, college in the 70s. And looking back on it, I can still, I didn't know it at the time because I was young and I was raw, raw, and I was buying into all these narratives. But looking back on it, that was the beginning of the whole indoctrination period. And what's the purpose of the indoctrination? This is just my theory. You got a different theory. Uh, once again, if you think about power and money, no matter what, whenever you're trying to get to the th think power and money, I know they got us thinking race, but that's because they want the power and the money. People want to manipulate us uh, using the race. Uh, but power people out there, they know, and once again, they control our information. By the way, it always amazes me that a lot of my let me be honest, Democrat voting friend, they don't trust rich people and powerful people, but somehow they don't make the connection that it's the rich and powerful people that's controlling the news that you're hearing, that's controlling both of the media that you're getting, they're controlling the your college education, the public school curriculum. I don't know how you separate those two. Who, who, who do you think is bringing you the news? Who do you think when you go out to these websites and you got all this information and they're they fooling you and tricking you with all this information, they're very slick at it. Who do you think they're bringing you that information? The same people that you think are your enemies is behind the scenes controlling all that too. If you think about it, it can't work with any other way. So anybody out there who don't see this or who think I'm wrong, please get in touch with me and I will gladly sit down with you and discuss these things. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Now, I don't think I'm wrong. It's kind of like, I was telling someone the other day, it's kind of like uh, when I used to play chess in these chess tournaments, especially it's something, by the way, I'm a member of a fraternity cap outside. And we used to have these Pan-Hellenic games and every year, I'd win the chess tournament. Now, at that time, I didn't even have to play during the year. I played once a year. But my point is, a lot of people talk smack and think they know what they're talking about. And I'm normally pretty confident that at my level, I know what I'm talking about. Now, once again, I say it like that because there's levels to everything. Even when I was winning that chess, I tell people, you know what? That means... The average or normal, however you want to put it off the street, I'm going to beat you. I don't care who you are. Now, if you have been studying chess openings, you've been playing in a lot of tournaments, and you've really been studying the game, you're going to move up a level, and that's going to be beyond me. So no, no matter what it is that you're in, there's different levels, and understand your level. In fact, uh, I diverged a little bit here. There was a friend of mine, Glenn. We worked in the same mechanical engineering firm. He was major in electrical engineering. And uh, uh, he used to beat me consistently. I think he beat me, he probably beat three out of five times. And actually, to this day, I haven't figured out how he was beating me, but he had a lot of experience and stuff. Uh, another little story, side story with Glenn. Uh, one, one weekend, he decided to invite me down to his hometown, La Crosse, Wisconsin. And, you know, once again, if you know me and you've been following me, 
Uh, I don't stereotype people. I don't assume that wild white people are racist and they're going to give me a hard time. And I guess the reason I don't assume it, because generally speaking, I haven't had a hard time. Right? So they, when I treat them with respect, they treat, well, when I treat everybody with anybody with respect, they tend to return that. Long story short, just a little aside, uh, uh, some of you heard that at that time, uh, Beretta was out and I never watched Beretta. And there's a character in Beretta called Rooster. Long story short there, uh, most of the white white people in there, white white kids, they'd never seen a black person in their life. So Glenn's little sister and brother was charging their friends a nickel to come over and meet me. I thought that was kind of cute. Anyway, let's move on uh, with Dr. Soul. Uh, hear what he says. And people, please try to put your emotions and things aside. Uh, try to be open-minded. Uh, try to listen to the facts, data, phys, uh, logic, and things, and focus on that. And don't do like this guy did uh, with the study. Before he even read it, he's calling it a BS. Uh, but I know human nature, I'm not naive. There's some of you out there, that no matter what the truth and facts are, if you don't like it, you're not going to like the person that's bringing you those truth and facts. And that's okay with me. But you can't change it. The truth is the truth. Uh, Joining us today is Thomas Saul, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He is the author of many books that have cast a critical eye at American society, including Inside American Education and Race and Culture. His latest book, The Vision of the Anointed, Self-Congratulation as the Basis for Social Policy, has been called a broadside against the received wisdom of America's elite liberal intelligentsia. Tom Sowell, why don't you start out and tell us what the vision of the anointed is about? What is it? Well, it's one, a vision that the problems that we see in the world are due to the fact that other people are just not as bright or as compassionate as they are. Uh, and that there are all these solutions out there waiting to be discovered. They have them. And that these solutions that are being imposed upon the rest of us uh, by, by the power of government through taxation or other ways. Uh, and what's really crucial about it is that their passion is so, so much greater than the passion on the other side, largely because what they have involved is more. Who's the they? Oh, the, 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 uh, the media elite, the uh, academic elite, political elites. And, I, and the reason we can talk about their vision, even though they obviously vary in their opinions, uh, is that the basic set of underlying assumptions about the world are very similar. Um, and because these assumptions are the prevailing assumptions, uh, the need to find evidence for them or to offer proof is much less. If something, ha if something happens, they'll explain it in a way which will fit that vision. For example, uh, when they find that uh, prenatal care is less among blacks than among whites, and that um, infant mortality rates are higher, uh, they immediately assume this is because of society's neglect, and therefore only the government will step in and provide more prenatal care. That, that problem solves itself. But in reality, uh, other groups have even less prenatal care than blacks and don't have any more mortality than whites. Uh, but they don't ever get to that second stage because once they've seen something that fits their conception of how the world works, that's sort of the end of it. Let, let me go back to that idea of who 
the they is. Uh, I mean, in, in your cosmology, are these liberals? Is that what they are? Yes. Uh, you got the New York Times, the Washington Post, Harvard, Stanford, uh, you know, the Edward Kennedys, the uh, all the usual suspects. Uh, let me. Uh, but it's more than those particular people because no, this I'm, mindset goes back at least two hundred years. Who does it start with? What, what is I don't know where it starts, but okay. you can find it in the eighteenth century. If you read uh, William Godwin. Uh, inquiry concerning political justice in 1793. You have the whole vision laid out just as it was in the 1960s. But the 1960s were a crucial point because that's when this vision became dominant. This sort of arrogant vision that we know best. Oh, yes. And, and don't even have to subject it to normal forms of proof. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now, I think that when people say things like uh, more American wives are battered on Super Bowl Sunday, you see that any other time of the year, uh, and, and there's not a speck of evidence for that. Uh, that is calculated. Because there's different, different, oh, I mean, you, there, there, is, there is no data that can even be misinterpreted that way. In other words, because there is no data, period. And so, yes, but I think that 99% of the people who believe it are not calculated. And I, think, and I think one of the reasons that it flies without, without even being challenged for evidence is that there is a certain vision of how the world is, and in that world, men are oppressing women. And therefore, when you say something like this, it fits the vision. And that's the end of it. There's no there's no demand for evidence. You, you have in, in your book sort of a, a series toward the beginning of how the actual process works of forming one of these ideas and yes. selling it and rejecting the proof. Maybe you could just kind of yes. march it through this there's, as, there's a, a fourth, as a model. Of it. All right, there's a four-stage uh, 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 pattern. And in the first phase is what, what's what I call the crisis. And so we're hyped to believe that something is a terrible crisis for which something must be done. Uh, and uh, what, was, what was fascinating to me in doing the research for the book is that very often the thing that's said to be in crisis has often been getting better for years on end. But that gets ignored. Then the second stage is... For, for example, infant mortality, to, to use one of the... Well, uh, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about uh, um, preg uh, teenage pregnancy and venereal disease. Uh, those things were getting better. Teenage pregnancy was going down for more than a decade before sex education was introduced. Venereal disease, uh, syphilis in 1960s, uh, was only, had only half the incidence that it had in 1950. So all these things are going down, yet that were said to need sex education to deal with this crisis, which has been manufactured. And again, this is where the calculated part comes in. Now, 99% of the people who hear this don't, don't know that. And, but, but the reason they accept it is because they also share the same vision. And because this is constant with that vision, they don't have to ask for everything. Right, so what's, what's stage two? The, the stage two is the, the first one is there's a crisis. Yes. Establish a crisis. I, I just wanted to stop before we get into the stages and touch on a few things before I, I, I forget. This whole thing of you don't need evidence. And by the way, there's brain science and everything human psychology and everything that's going on here that most people don't understand, but the people who, is, who are doing this, they know exactly what they're doing. And you've heard me say before, uh, the rich and powerful and educated, very educated, that class, uh, in university, they study us like mice, like lab mice. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, and I'm gonna get back to him, you hear him talking about the colleges, uh, the newspaper, New York Times and Washington Post, and I'm gonna go on record saying, don't listen to nothing that they're telling you. Go out, don't don't trust it. 
Anyway, don't trust anything you read in these papers. They're part of the scam, people. Especially New York Times. They're the head of the snake when it comes to scamming black, us black folks. The New York Times and Washington Post, and if you pay attention, generally the way the media news works, the New York Times or Washington Post will publish something, and then the TV station will take it and run with it. And once again, without questioning it. And do me a favor one of these days, one of these mornings, uh, when they are really, really pushing a narrative, whether it's hate Trump or whether it's, it's abortion or whatever, sometimes just pay attention. Uh, they're all using the exact same phrase. And I'm saying what, what always struck me, sometimes five or six o'clock in the morning, I'm like, how the heck are they all using the same phrase to describe this event? But once again, that's part of the subtlety of what they're doing. Just repeat the same thing over and over. And I think I read somewhere, uh, as far as our brain is concerned, we can only hold so many, for lack of a better way, opinions in our brains at one time. And they know if they just keep flooding us with the same BS, whether it's true or not, whether there's evidence for it or not, eventually we're going to believe it. And once again, and this is special to all my educators, smart people who think I'm crazy, who know me, uh, that's the way that works, whether you believe it or not. And if you want to challenge me on it, please contact me. So let's get back to uh, uh, Dr. Soul. Usually an artificial one. Yes. Uh, then, then, then stage two is the solution. You have a solution for this crisis. In this case, you have sex education in the schools. And then uh, at that point, you say, if, if we do this, this will lead to beneficial result A. The critics say, no, it will lead to detrimental result Z. Stage three, you put it in the results. You put it in, and directly you find detrimental result Z, namely venereal disease and teenage pregnancy take off into the stratosphere. And then stage four is the fascinating part, in which they simply say, no, that doesn't prove that this was a bad policy, because there are many factors. There's complexity. It's simplistic to blame it on this. But they run through this routine on so many different things, including crime. Similarly, they said, you know, in 1960, Judge Bazelon said, we just desperately need to have some kind of change in the criminal justice system. Now, in 1960, uh, there were fewer murders than there had been in 1950, 1940, or 1930. Uh, but again, that was completely ignored. And so now we have the revolution in the criminal justice system. People say, no, if you have to put these new things in, there'll be more crime than before. They put them in. Uh, almost instantly, the declining crime rate turns around and heads up again. And they say, no, it's simplistic to blame this on, on this. There are the root causes of the neglect of society and all the rest of it. So it's heads I win, tails you lose. Why would a group of, of liberal intellectuals or politicians or media stars or whatever, why would they sit around and decide to uh, uh, dismember or dilute the criminal justice system if they thought in advance that it would raise the amount of criminality. Oh, they, they, didn't, they didn't think that, but the point is... They just thought wrongly that it would be that it would help. Yes, but, but it would also give them an enormously larger role than they had before. I mean, a judge who just sits there and applies the laws that have been passed by the legislature has a very minor role. But if he takes the expansive uh, judicial activist role, then, of course, he's on the leading edge, and he can look for the hosannas and all the rest of it. Inside. How does this play out in the realm of something else you have written about, which is uh, affirmative action. Exactly. What, how does that process? What's the one, two, three, four on that? 
I, I, I haven't worked it out uh, uh, like that, but uh, certainly there is no interest whatever in finding out empirically whether things have been made better or worse for minorities as a result of, of this program. Uh, and in fact, if you bring them up evidence, they'll say, oh, but things would have been even worse had we not done this. Similarly with the war on poverty, you, you can show how dependency on government was going down, poverty was going down before this program was ever put in. And within a few years, dependence on government was going up, and after a few more, more years, the absolute number of people in poverty was going up. This was sold to the country, not on the ground, that if you transferred money from A to B, that B would have more money. That was not the argument. The argument was that dependency would be reduced, that you would, quote, invest in people, as Bill Clinton is now saying, now that people have gotten what was said in the 60s. This will then, you give them job training and all those kinds of things, parenting skills, the whole bit. And this will then be an investment that will pay off in the future because there'll be fewer people dependent upon the government than there were before. And I go through a great number of people from John F. Kennedy, Melinda Johnson, the New York Times, again, all the usual suspects. Said all these things. Lyndon Johnson was not a usual suspect, Bob. Well, <laughs> he, 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 was, he was the primary suspect. All right. Uh, but the fact is, that was never tested. And when, when there were all these wonderful retrospectives held down in Texas and other places about this, the first order of business is to evade the criteria that they themselves set up when they set this out. And so no matter what happens, if the if it's, if it's a failure by the original criterion, then we just find another criterion by which it would be a success. Well, let's just examine that for a minute. I, I have a, a friend of mine from those old White House days was listening to, again, Gingrich shortly after we had this great Republican Revolution in, in, uh, in 1994, a great meaning views, not necessarily wonderful, which we'll see about that. And uh, he, he kept hearing Newt Gingrich use the word opportunity, this conservative opportunity society, we have to provide opportunity. And, and I was talking to him, he said, you know, Gingrich uses that word opportunity almost as much as Johnson did, which is what you're saying, that that was the rhetoric, uh, it was called the uh, equal uh, uh, OEO was the Office of Economic Opportunity. Yeah. That's what it was. Now, so if, if liberals were talking about opportunity, and now conservatives are talking about opportunity, and I'm sure you're for opportunity. All God's children got opportunity. All God's children got opportunity. So, so what is your, your problem that, that liberals said we ought to create programs for opportunity? And in point of fact, I mean, uh, just to, I won't say play devil's advocate, because, I mean, a, a lot of the things that, that came out of the great society uh, building all those junior colleges and community colleges. Oh, I would disagree with Ty. I think it was a tragedy of the first That was a period. tragedy. Yes. Why is that a tragedy? You have millions of people who have absolutely no desire for an education, using up billions of dollars of the taxpayers' money, and not only not getting an education themselves, making it more difficult to give an education to those people who came to college with an idea of getting one. Now, you say they have no desire for an education. I mean, nobody is herding them into these community colleges and into the junior colleges oh, and into the state oh, university. Oh. I mean, they have a desire, no, obviously. No, they do not, obviously, because lots of things go on in those places that are not education. I mean, where else can you find so many uh, young people of the uh, same age and opposite sex in one place, uh, a nice, convenient place to be, but anyone who is taught in, these, in, in, in a lot of these places, this, this ferocious desire for education as such is not terribly visible. And I taught at places where we've gotten, you know, the upper 10, 15 percent of students, I mean, UCLA and whatnot. Uh, and uh, neither, neither I nor my colleagues found this great desire for education as such. They wanted to be in Ivy-covered buildings for four years in order to get more money when they graduate and have a good time while they're there. 
So you think the uh, the great American ideal, which has really been shared by both parties and both ideologies over recent decades, to allow more people to get into higher education, that that is a bankrupt idea? Oh, to allow is one thing, but to subsidize people at enormous cost with no real sign uh, that this is producing what, 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 what we intend well, I mean, to say, When you say subsidize, I mean, you talk about a junior college, a community college. I guess that's subsidized. It, it, it's, it's, it's below cost uh, sure. uh, uh, tuition, but it does allow uh, kids uh, who, who do not have the money to go to Amherst or wherever uh, to, to, to start a college people, education. I mean, they people do that before the Great Society. I did it before the Great Society. My whole generation did it before the Great Society. You are saying that the, uh, the great humanitarian political impulses of the 1960s have been almost without exception bad. Well, there is some, some good ones, but I'm saying that the assumption that uh, on the education front, I mean, I, I would defy you to find a large number of people who've actually taught these students who really think that they're out there thirsting for knowledge. If you, if you, if, if you suppose think, they are thirsting for a better job and we've set up a society where you have to be credentialed with a certain amount oh, of knowledge, so can't, aren't they able to get a better job? No, because this, this, this is a fallacy of composition. Uh, you know, if one person stands up in the stadium, he sees the game better, but if they all stand up, they don't all see the game better. Uh, as long as, you know, if you, have, if you have a degree and the other guy doesn't, then you get ahead of him in the employment line. We're not going to all get ahead of each other on the employment line by all getting degrees. So this. Is so, yeah, I just want to unpack a few things. First of all, I didn't mention before uh, this video interview was in 1985, and the striking thing about it, uh, most of the things that he's pointing out in the issues and the challenges, they still exist today. And a lot of it, how do I put this? A lot of it, of it is because that's the shell game that they're playing. Uh, it will never produce results, and they know it. What they want to do is how keep us with hope that a lot of these government programs are going to solve the problem, and that's probably even unfair too, because once again, the benefit of living in these communities give me a better understanding. And, and once you understand people, you're not so judgmental anyway. But, you know, I tell people, uh, when you are don't have much money, you don't see much coming in, and here's the part about it, there's hardly any family members you can go to for money and there's hardly anybody in your circle you can go to for money. So this put a lot of people in very desperate situations, and I can understand it. We don't care where the money comes from. And I shouldn't say don't care because I never liked that phrase. It doesn't matter to us where this money is coming from. We got to feed our children. We got to pay our bills, uh, pay mortgage, rent, or whatever. And which leads me to another point, and this is the sad part about it, and it's not coincidental. Uh, people. And because I'm talking to my black community too, it's not coincident, coincidental black, my black people out here, sisters and brothers, that as time goes on, and since 1960s or whatever, 
a large part of our population is becoming almost exclusively dependent on government. And I pointed this out before, when you're dependent on government, you're dependent on politicians. When you're dependent on politics, and there's some good ones out there, and you can, uh, and I, I got enough experience in this. You can go in with all the right motivation, all the good intentions. It's a corrupt kind of system in a lot of ways. And what I'm saying is that the politician, they will give you money to keep you poor and dependent in exchange for your vote. And it's a common kind of proverbial kind of saying, people vote their pocketbooks. And, and if I'm gonna to be totally honest, the Democrats have figured this out. They will always suggest another government program. They will always suggest the government helping you out because the more you're dependent on them, the more you're gonna vote for them. And it's that simple people. So let's finish this up with uh, Dr. Sowell and we'll come back and wrap things up. This whole idea that uh, I guess again both uh, liberals and conservatives are saying is that at this particular moment, 1995, uh, we have to get more people into the education system because that's the way to compete and we look at the data and we see that uh, the people with more education are earning more money than ever before relative to the people with less education. People That's who, all a fallacy of everybody standing people, up in the stadium. It, it, people who fly on the Concord, kids who fly on the Concord, undoubtedly will make more money than people who, kids who are only going on buses. That does not mean that we put a lot of people on the Concord, we're going to raise the national income. <laughs> The last thing, which is one of my pet peeves, uh, he, uh, the point he's making, there's a difference between a correlation and a cause and effect. And how they trick us a lot of times is there's often a correlation between the issues that Black people are having in their skin color. And so what they do is take that correlation and convince us that that's the cause. And it's a little subtle thing. And he, the example he gave about uh, the concours and the buses, they will convince you that the bus is the cause of your issues and you need to get on the concourse. But that's not the real issue. And, and once again, it gets down to data and probably even more fundamentally, a scientific methodology of looking at issues and problems and trying to define solutions and respecting data, respecting facts and figures, respecting logic. And the reason why I'm out here and I, I take some of the same heat that the brother would be at the police study does, uh, but the reason I'm out here, somebody got to say it. And I guess... Now, thinking about that earlier today, uh, another reason I'm out here is because Dr. Soul, oh, bless his soul, like I said, he's 94 years old or so. So he's the previous generation. And I just always thought we have a responsibility, spiritual or otherwise, to pay it forward. Uh, 
as a young man, I stood on Dr. Soul's shoulders and he taught me things, he learned me things. I'm the next generation after him. And if I continue to work harder and do what I'm supposed to do, and God bless me to get to be 93 or 94, maybe there'll be someone from the previous generation that said, you know, this Lacey Johnson, he changed my mind, my views on a lot of things. And I really respect that. And maybe there'll be someone who's sitting uh, in some maybe studio somewhere someday who says that if I had to pick one person to go out to dinner with and sit down and talk to, it would be Lacey Johnson. Uh, I'm doing all this. The main reason I'm doing it, the main reason I, because I tell everybody, this true story. I'm basically a private person. I don't like public. I don't like getting out here, but somebody got to do this. Uh, uh, in like this, they're using race and racism. The liberals, the Democratic Party, uh, they're all using it to scam black people to keep them voting the way they do, which leads to the power. You, you have to remember, I think each year, I think that's but the national budget, the federal government budget is from four to six trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. And there are people out there know that the people in power are responsible for giving it up. They are responsible for the rules and regulation on how they operate. So it, having the control of the United States government is a big deal. And then there's international people out there who understand uh, the global, geo-global political uh, chessboard. Uh, example of that is this whole war in Ukraine. Uh, and it's a scam, people. It's a scam. Uh, and you got to really get into the military industry. In fact, I'm going to do this for my next podcast. And there are people out there who know how this stuff works. They know the major organizations behind what's going on. But here's the thing. Always keep in mind, and Dr. Soul has been pointing this out. The New York Times, Washington Post, damn dang near every television station, most of the websites, even the fact-checking, Wikipedia, Google, just about all the social media platform, they're all in the same mindset. They're all part of the same scam. And I keep stressing the New York Times and Washington Post because, like I said, I think they're the head of the snake myself. I don't have no proof for it. I'm going to do a little bit more digging on that. Don't believe nothing they tell you when it comes. Well, I shouldn't say nothing. Always, and I always would learn the uh, phrase in my liberal arts education college, healthy skepticism. And apply the same healthy skepticism whether you like the person or don't like them. Uh, I tell people one of the reasons that I think I'm, I, I learn a lot because I don't dislike people. You know, I ain't got nothing to do with dislike. I just want to know the truth. I want to know the facts. And that's all that's important to me. And then I'll decide from there. And I stress all the time, and this is some of this stuff is just simple country logic to me. I am a country boy. Uh, people that you like and love can lie to you if you haven't figured that out yet. People that you dislike and hate can be truthful to you. And so 
Just don't judge the truth based on who it's coming from. Take each one of them itself. And that's what I try to do. Okay, he said this. Now, in order to do that, and this is where the, this is where the challenge come in. You got to do a lot of homework. Uh, my wife uh, had a tooth extraction, and we were sitting and watching some old episode of Colombo. And you almost have to do that on everything. You just have to really dig. People don't understand how hard it is to figure out all the BS they throw in our way to make us believe certain things and buy into certain narratives. And I know most people don't have time to do it, but that's what you're going to have to do. Because otherwise, and like I said, one of my favorite saying, if you don't know any better, people can convince you of anything. And when I try to tell people, even don't even listen to me, go out and do the research yourself. Uh, one of the tricks that I do, and I've been doing it for uh, for a long time, probably since I've been married, because my wife found out very early, I'm not good at counting sheeps to go to sleep. <laughs> and so what I do, I, I kind of pick, pick a subject, something I'm interested in or two. Uh, I put on my headphones and I put on uh, some YouTube video. I don't watch it and just listen to it, whether, you know, whether it's uh, quantum physics uh, entanglement principle, and that'll blow your, your mind. Science, literature, history, some of those are just war. And you'll be amazed at what you find out when you go study the beginning of all these wars. There's a pattern that exists there too. That once again, when you sit and listen to the news, in fact, uh, my wife will tell you, it's hard for me to even listen to the news. It, it, it's so much BS. But I listen to it because I know that's where most of the people get that knowledge and information from. And I want to know my audience when I'm talking to people. So anyway, that's it. I got one last thing I'm going to get out because we did. And I showed you this last time too, but the whole idea of race and racism, how they're using that to indoctrinate Black Americans and how they do it, and just the fundamentals of the principle of propaganda. And I keep reminding you to go out and do some research on Edward Bernays, who's considered the father of propaganda. In fact, he wrote a book, but you can go out and, and search for him on YouTube. And there's a few uh, videos out there, if they're still out there, because you know YouTube, they, they censor stuff and take stuff up and down off too. But go out there and learn how propaganda works and there's two main features, uh, among other things. One, group ID. That's one of the basic fundamentals of why they're able to uh, convince us, of, well, to shape our opinion, group ID. So they're going to start off with, I mean, with Black folks, uh, race and racism. They know that's the narrative. As long as they focus on that narrative, you're going to win Black people over. And they know that. Uh, with women, probably the abortion issue, American women, uh, they're going to use that narrative to sway the way you vote and to sway the power pendulum uh, in this country. So I'm trying to say that is that we're going to end again with uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson, the astrophysicist, talking about evolution, how our brains evolve. And, and one last thing before we get there. Uh, and, and just a little second, and I'm not an expert at this, but I know enough to be dangerous. Uh, he's going to talk about how we evolve and how our brain evolved. And I try to get people to understand is that 
the people who are programming us, like you said, they know how our brains work. They know that these signals that come from our five senses, the area that it first hit the brain, the base, is where all our instincts are controlled at, our instinctual reactions. And so whether it's our sight, our uh, hearing, our taste, our smell, our touch, those signals first hit the most primal parts of our brain, and our brains react to it. And it's hard. And another thing is, we think we're logical, but they know better. We know, and based on everything I've heard, the way our brains work, our instincts hit first. And then it goes to the rest of our brains, and our logic has to line up with our instinct. That's the way our brains are designed. It ain't like our instincts and feeling lines up with logic. In fact, I've told this story before, and you can check it out. If I'm wrong, come back and let me know. But you know, the Navy SEALs, they have this water test. And I understand the reason they do this water test, because we have a natural primal fear of drowning. And they do the water test because they're trying to train the Navy SEALs not to immediately act instinctual and learn how to bypass or shortcut the instinct part and go to the logic part of our brain. They tell me that's what uh, one of the main purpose of the uh, uh, underwater tests and things like that. Because you, if you think about it, if you think you can ground, you immediate panic, your instincts kicks in. And so one of the reasons they try to overcome that with Navy SEAL training is the underwater test where you, this instinctual fear of water and drowning, uh, they try to teach these Navy SEALs how to short circuit that reaction and use their frontal lobe where the thinking portion of our brain is. And I hope I explained that correctly. But let's do this. Let's go to uh, Dr. Tyson, and he's going to explain in pretty fundamental terms this whole idea of tribalism and, and group ID that they use to shape our opinion for us and make us think that we're coming to those opinions ourselves. Why racism is stupid. If you go back, you know, 100,000 years, we lived in tribes and these tribes, these nomadic tribes, these, you know, hunter-gatherer tribes, they're people in your same family, people who look like you, people who smelled like you, and that was your tribe. And there's another tribe over there. So now you want to protect your tribe. And there it is. We were like that for hundreds of thousands of years. We evolved that way. And then rapidly in recent centuries, where we can communicate with each other instantly, travel instantly, see everyone around the world basically instantly, we have no need for these tribal ways. Yet we evolve that way. And so we have, let me call it tribal baggage. Mm -hmm. What is the tribal baggage? We go out of our way to find people that we say are in our group. Are you in or out? And if you're out in the limit, I might take up arms against you because you're not in my group. And the group could be anything. So we're going to wrap it up. Once again, go out and do some research on Dr. Soul. Understand that there are a lot of black conservatives out there. In fact, if I'm honest, that's going to be our answer. As long as we get and push this liberal crap on uh, the black community, uh, it's going to keep getting worse. Uh, we really got to focus on putting our families back together. And that's, to me, 
It's the role of black men. It ain't the role of white folks to change or anything else like that society of the world to change. And I've told you before, one thing I like about the way I was raised, we didn't get into race and differences in people. They simplified the world for me. They simplified life for me. God, the world, and you. Three factors. And two of them, son, has been the same for years. There's nothing new under the sun. God has been the same. The only variable in that equation is you. And once again, I thank God I wasn't raised to look somewhere else for answers. It's me. It's in me. And once we get that mindset, we got to solve these problems by ourselves, people. Whatever the issue is, and I've said it before, whoever and whatever you want to change, the first step is changing yourself. Whether it's the way you look at stuff, whether it's the way you communicate, whatever it is. And stop buying into a lot of these crazy notions like minimum wages and stuff. A lot of this stuff just doesn't make sense. In fact, uh, we, we saw Dr. Sowell, we saw Milton Freeman, we saw William F. Buckley, all these are conservative. And this is where I'm going. And I'm just being honest. And, uh, and really, I challenge anybody to come uh, to show me difference. Except for the war on drugs, eliminating that, which all of us conservatives are, whether you're talking about William F. Buckley, Milton Freeman, or Dr. Thomas Sowell. They're all for the government staying out of your life, and it's not the government role to protect individuals and things like that. Uh, and in fact, I guess it's a good thing to say that they basically got a libertarian bent. But except for that one policy, because if you think about it, this whole war on drugs is the reason we got a lot of the situation going on in our community. The reason for the great police president that caused some of the issues and run-ins. Uh, that's the only that's the only policy of the Democrat Party. That makes sense to me. And no other one makes sense. I might have missed one or two, but if anybody send me some comment, tell me one policy of the Democrat Party that makes sense. Uh, I, I, and I'm just being honest. When I think about it, none of it makes sense. None of it is going to work. We've been trying it for 50, 60 years. It's not going to work, people. And it's not, look. If, if, if the name of the party doesn't matter to me, it's whoever got the right idea and, and, and saw and, and get the right results is what I'm interested in. And so none of that policies work. I really challenge you. And, and by the way, I, as you probably know, I got a lot of uh, Democrat friends and family members, and this is a true story. I have never gotten an answer from any of them, but I challenge them. Name me one Democrat policy that makes sense. And I'm challenging my audience out there. And I want you, and I'm just being serious. None of it, if you got data, facts, and knowledge, and really analyze it, none of them make sense. And like Brother Soul was saying, they don't work. We tell them it's not going to work. You can look at it and see it's not going to work. But once again, they pull that sleight of hand. When it doesn't work, they come up with some other criteria to judge it on. And I'll end it with a quote from Dr. Milton Friedman, the uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics. He, he's really anti-government. And I don't much blame you if you understand it, if you understand the history of the government, if you understand the logic behind the U.S. government, if you understand the logic behind the Constitution, all that good stuff. 
government is hardly ever the solution to hardly anything. And he feels that way. But he says the hardest thing to do is get rid of a government program uh, that you never get rid of. Go ahead and read some of his, uh, his quotes and comments on government. And once again, just to broaden your perspective, get a different perspective. And finally, go out and find somebody that you don't agree with and have a respectful dialogue with them. And I will go even further. Go out there and find somebody that you say you don't like and see, can you sit down with them and establish a dialogue or respect where you're listening and trying to learn? Because once again, I'll end with this. I just want to know what the facts and truth are wherever they land. This is Lacey Johnson. Another episode of the Lacey Johnson podcast every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Central Time. Go out, like, subscribe, go to the online store, give me comments, and donate via Patreon. I think that's what it's called. Somebody might have to correct me. And uh, didn't recognize my young studio tech here, Mr. Matt Washington. Thank you, studio. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.